Pastor D has asked me to read from the New Living Translation. John 9, 18-34. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked him, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man explained. I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God... He couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This story, amen, sorry. (laughs) This story has hit an odd point. This man has been healed. No matter how many times they have tried to tell this man that was healed that it's not him that was healed. Isn't that interesting? They ask him multiple times, are you sure you were the blind man that was healed? Are you sure you were the beggar that Jesus healed? And he has to keep telling them, yes, that's me. I know that it's me. I was blind. Now I see. I know it's me. Then they bring in his parents and they say, are you sure this is the kid that you gave birth to and he was blind and now he's healed? But instead of his parents saying, yeah, that's him, his parents say, we know that's our son, but for the rest of it, you got to talk to him. We're not owning up to anything. So you got to think, what's going on? You would think his parents would be down on the ground praising God for all they're worth. Because wouldn't you, if your child had been born without sight and then suddenly they were healed, wouldn't you be on your knees 24-7 praising God that they brought sight to your child? But you got to understand a little bit of background of what's going on. The Gospel of John was not written in 33 B.C. or 
CE, AD. We call it CE now, it used to be AD. It gets confusing after a while. But it wasn't written immediately after Christ's death. Actually, we date the Gospel of John sometime after the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem. So after 70 CE, so quite some time later. And what was happening during that time in the synagogues is that the Jewish people who have always prayed together and lived together and gone into the same synagogues were now fracturing between those who wanted to remain Jewish and not change at all, even though Christ had come, and those who had said, I love this Christ, I love what he says, I believe he's the Messiah, and there was a crack. Now, we've seen that happen in our own faith tradition, haven't we? We are the, project, the product of the Church of England. And we had John Wesley come into the Church of England and said, I'm not trying to divide the Church of England. I'm just trying to make it better because God has called me to do that. So I'm just trying to make you a better Church of England. And then the Church of England at one point said, oh, you people that follow the Methodist way, you've got to get out. And that's what we're seeing in the book of John. Is all those people that are saying that they believe in Christ, they got to get out. But what's that doing? That's breaking up families. That's breaking up communities. That's breaking up friends. And that's causing a lot of pain. A lot of pain in the synagogues and a lot of pain for the church leaders and a lot of pain for the Jewish leaders and a lot of concern. So we have this man that was blind and suddenly he can see and we say, it's a miracle. How can anybody not believe it's a miracle? Because he was blind and now he can see. So we all know it's a miracle. And I want you to think, somebody walked through that door right now and said, I was blind, and now I can see. What would be your first response? Great, go to a doctor, have it checked out. We would be like, yes, praise God. We'd have it, no, I'd really like it to be verified. Was it really God that did it? Pastor Jane touched me, and I was healed. We'd be like, Wow, that was great timing, wouldn't it? Would we completely believe that John, I mean, that Jane touched this person and suddenly they were healed? Or would we say, well, you know, they were taking medicine and it finally clicked in and, you know, that would happen? We've got to give these people in the story a little bit of a faith because a little bit of room. Because when's the last time you turned around and you said, I've seen a miracle. When's the last time that you said, you know, I know miracles exist and I truly believe that they happen and that they are a normal part of our lives? When's the last time that you truly thought that a miracle was going to happen? Or the last time you felt that truly a miracle was going to be there and you didn't pray to God that a miracle was going to happen through science. Or you didn't pray to God that a miracle was going to happen because somebody was going to make it happen, but you just prayed to God that zip, bam, boom, a miracle was going to happen. 
We're no different than the people then. We read it in the Bible, and the Bible tells us, John tells us that this miracle happened. So we say, of course this miracle happened. It is written down. It has been canonized. It is in our book. It happened. We believe, wow, these people are stupid. Why can't they believe this? Yet if somebody walked in now and told me that they had cancer yesterday and Pastor Scott prayed with them, and Pastor Scott does some amazing prayers, doesn't he? Has anybody here prayed with Scott? When he gets going, man, it's good. And Pastor Scott prayed with them and he said, take this cancer away, and it was gone. How many of us would say, well, yeah, well, the chemo had a lot of part to do with that. Instead of just saying that Pastor Scott prayed it away. We're just like those people. We forget that God is still healing us today. We forget that miracles happen every day in our lives. I was part of that discussion group that I go to every week, and we, we tried in this group that had pastors and people, we tried pulling out miracle stories. And I cannot tell you how uncomfortable the silence was around that table. When they said, well, come up with a miracle story that happened in your life. And we st sat there and stared at each other. Then we looked down at our book like it was going to say, and here's the miracle story. And then we stared at each other some more, and then we came up with some stories, but everybody had a caveat with it. I talked about my miracle story. I had a, a horrible car accident when I was nine months pregnant with Erica. My mom was in the car. My mom's best friend was in the car. It was Eric's absolute favorite antique car that I totaled. I was on... Um, Route 53, where it merges with 90, and the steering was real loose, and I lost control, and I hit a truck, and I spun the car, and I ended up going head-on into a guardrail. And it was a mess. The seat's in a 62. In a 62, the seat belt's um, attached to the seat itself, and the whole front seat went smashing into the front of the car. So we were pinned. And... I lift my head up, and I have two men on the other side of my car. Both of them are EMTs. One is taking care of my mother, who is bleeding all over the place. One is taking care of me, who is bleeding all over the place. They took their shirts off, and they gave them to us. And they ministered to us, and they kept us calm. And this was during rush hour. And if anybody's been by Woodfield during rush hour, it's insane. So I don't even know how they got there. But they took their shirts off and they ministered to us the entire time and they kept us calm. And you know it had to be serious because the one guy kept saying, stop blowing your nose, I think you lost your teeth. You know, it was that nasty. And then when the ambulance came, these men disappeared. Now I know I had head trauma, I have no problem with that. But how did they get there in the first place? Or how were they placed exactly where we needed them in the first place? And then how did they disappear? Because we had helicopters and, you know, Illinois state troops and county. Oh, my God, it was on the news everywhere. So how did they get there and leave? And we never had a name. We never had anything. That's my miracle. We weren't healed. 
That's my miracle. But that's not the type of miracle they're talking about. That's not, I was blind. Yeah, I was messed up. My baby was fine. That's a miracle. Now, the funny side, because you're all waiting for me to break bad on Eric. (laughs) We were all fine. Stitches and contusions and all that stuff. Eric gets to the, the emergency room, and he walks in, and they tell him, your wife is fine, your baby is fine, your car is total, breaks down and sobs. <laughs> That's true, too. But we think of those as miracles, but not truly healing miracles. So when I was looking for where do we find miracles, I went to the only saint that I truly believe in. I believe in the apostles of saints. But I truly believe in Mother Teresa. I believe that God gave her something special in this world. In order for her to to be canonized, she had to do true miracles. So there was a miracle first, an Indian woman who, Monica Basra, in 1998, had a tumor. She was dying. She was in one of those hospices that the sisters have. And the sisters were staying up with her because the tumor was so large. She was in so much pain that there was nothing anybody could do with her. And she was up 24 hours a day because the pain was so intense. So the sisters were sitting by her bed praying with her. One of the sisters had a coin that she had pressed against Mother Teresa after she had passed away. And... To bring the woman relief, Monica relief, she pressed it against the woman's stomach where the tumor was, just hoping that Mother Teresa would bring this woman relief. But the next morning, the tumor was gone, completely healed. In um, 19, it took them five years, by, or longer than that, after reviewing that, the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in 2002, declared it a miracle. Then in, um, I'm looking at it, then there was a gentleman, Fernando Nascimento, who had a bacterial infection in his brain. They were praying. They said that he did not have long to live. He slipped into a coma, and his family prayed around his bed to Mother Teresa, The doctor told the family that he would pass away by the morning and said he sat up and greeted the doctor the next morning and he was fine. The doctor wrote all of this down in his own private notes, but the doctor was not Catholic, so he did not turn it into the church. When um, the Pope came to visit in 2008, The doctor remembered this miracle, remembered that the gentleman was Catholic, so he turned it into a local priest in the area and said, I don't know if this means anything, but this is what I remembered from the event. And so in 2015, it was made an official miracle. And that was the second miracle that Mother Teresa is seen as causing. Miracles happen. As a Protestant, I'm more cynical. I want miracles to happen, but I'm not sure that they do. And then we started talking. And I realized that we have a miracle happen with us every time we have communion. Now, how many people in here are cradle Methodists? 
Raise your hand. How many are cradle Methodists? So that means that you were Methodist before 1995. I came into the church in 1990 when the church was changing its policy on communion. Before 1995, you were raised with communion is symbolic. Communion is nothing more than a symbol of um, Jesus' gift to us. The bread and the cup is a symbol of Christ's sacrifice to the world. In 1995 and later, they changed that. Now it is a mystery. When we call down the Holy Spirit on it, it becomes blessed so that we have Christ's presence here with us. It is a form of consubstantiation, not what the Catholics have, of transubstantiation, where it becomes literally the body and the blood of Christ, which, sorry, I'm too Protestant, that's kind of ew for me. But it becomes consubstantiation. So when we call down the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ is with us. The presence of Christ becomes part of our table. When we serve the, the, the bread and the cup, we are in the presence of Christ. We are part of a miracle every time we have communion. And we even say it. And so many times we say things we don't even realize that we're saying them. We say, the pastor always says, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. And on these gifts of bread and wine, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in his final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. We have Christ here. That is part of our communion service, that we're not just here dealing with symbolic elements, but we are here part of a miracle, part of the very essence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Remember in John 14 when he says, I am not leaving you alone. I am not leaving you orphaned. I will be there. You may not see me, but you will know me because I will be with you. We do understand that we're with him. Every time that we celebrate communion, we are with him. That is part of what we are celebrating is that we are with him. John Wesley calls it a means of grace. When we are in the presence of Christ, when we are in the presence of God, that's what it means to have a means of grace, being closer to God. When we have the sacraments, we are having a means of grace. We walk into the presence of God. We interact with the presence of God. We step into the grace of God. At that moment, we actually can interact with the love of Jesus Christ in our lives. When someone hands you the bread and says, the body of Christ broken for you, and gives you the cup and says, the blood of Christ shed for you, you are actually interacting with the essence of Christ. Not the body of Christ, but the essence of Christ. You are there. 
celebrating the sacrifice that Christ made for you because Christ loved you so much that he sacrificed himself for you. And you are part of that sacrifice when you walk up and you take communion so that he knows you do remember him when you eat of the bread and you take of the cup. When he asked you to do this in remembrance of him, you are doing it. He is here, part of that act, and you are fulfilling your part of it when you do this in remembrance of him. You are part of that means of grace. You are part of that love of Christ. You are part of that sacred miracle of holy communion. You are part of a miracle that only God can give us and only God can provide us because Christ left us with the Holy Spirit so that we are never an orphan from God. We are never alone we are always, always in Christ's company and never more so than we are at Christ's table partaking of the elements, the gift that God gives us. Amen.